0: Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, starting at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, that is Jesus' ministry, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And he said, the head of John the Baptist. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. It's always uh, strange to say that after such a, sober story. But uh, yeah, there's a lot we can learn through this, and it's good that we're gathered around God's Word to commune with Him, to listen to Him, to uh, be brought together in the community that He has formed to learn compassion for one another and for our community. So go with me in prayer. Father, we ask that You would uh, speak to us by Your Word, that You would teach us more about who You are more about the great riches of Jesus and more about the power of your spirit. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you remember the culture-changing event that happened 10 years ago. Uh, You're probably all immediately thinking of it with with me. You can say it with me. The finale of the TV show Lost. I know everybody was thinking the same thing. It's exactly the kind of change in culture that you were you had in mind, you know. Um, no, the the TV show Lost was was actually a, a TV changing event. It sort of spawned what we think of as the premier television that that has kind of defined uh the end of the aughts and into the 2010s. Uh yet it's it's also kind of strange. But there's a whole host of things we could talk about about its influence. And that would be a conversation for another day. But the, the, the finale of the show uh, did set in motion one trend that is persistent. Fans that hate the finale. Because what happened was people brought all these different questions to it, all these different expectations, all these expectations about the, what this show was like. Because it was a great show. It captured your imagination. We all love getting caught up in something like that. But the problem is that we turn on it when it doesn't deliver, in the end, what it is we wanted from it. Uh, So there's all these different various responses to that. And that's a little bit like what, what happens to the prophets. Everybody wants to hear God's word. Everybody wants to hear what God has to say on a topic until they hear what God has to say on a topic. We all want to know what God has to say until we actually hear it. If it's not what we want to hear, it goes pretty badly. And this is one of those moments. Uh, Certainly for John the Baptist, but also to some extent, as we will see, for Jesus. So as we think about what it means that somebody brings God's word, the prophet brings God's word, we'll think about his identity, the challenge that he brings, and the fate that he meets. So identity, challenge, and fate of the prophet. So think about identity with me. Uh, what is a prophet? It's somebody that brings God's word, right? And notice how this passage starts. It starts off by Jesus being clearly identified as a prophet. There's a little debate that we see playing out uh, over what what could it be? Could, could he be John the Baptist, who's already dead by the time this story starts, could it be John the Baptist somehow or his spirit somehow communicating through Jesus? Could it be uh, Elijah that was promised at the end of the book of Malachi? Could it be one of the other prophets? This debate, by the way, we're introduced to it here. We're going to see it in chapter 8 again in a really important moment Uh, pop back up. But this is, this is the thing. Everybody thinks of Jesus as a prophet. That's the main category that they have for him. And so was John. John had been a prophet. John was really obvious because he stylized himself after Elijah. Kind of in Jeremiah with the way that he was going around saying, repent, repent. So he had stylized himself very clearly, even in his appearance as one of the old prophets. And of course, his message was one of repentance, which was the central message of the prophets. But Jesus also begins his ministry that way too. So even while there are continuing questions about exactly what Jesus is doing, because he did some amazing things that John never did, Jesus is still identified as a prophet. And most of us are a little confused by this idea of prophets, because what we think about is more like the the ancient greek oracles that would tell the future well they would really tell the fate of the person that they had that was talking right so that they were talking to so it is a kind of it is primarily about the future and it is primarily about sort of the fate that is wound around a person or a people or a city and this is the this is the kind of thing we tend to think about with the prophets which is not really accurate. That's not really what biblical prophecy is like. Because biblical prophecy, for one thing, is a lot less about the future and is more about your action now and what you're called to now. It does talk about the future, that's true, but the way it talks about the future is less in terms of this fate that is wrapped around you or me or or a particular city and is more about God delivering on the promises that he had already given. And and anything in the future is almost always framed with images from what had already happened in biblical history. A good example is the promises that Israel would return out of exile are all couched in terms of language of the Exodus. It would be just like that, where God brought the people back uh, out of slavery. So, So we see that... It, Prophets, then, are not so much people who just tell the future, but they are the, God's messengers who carry his word. And that means that one of the things that they do is prosecute God's case. In fact, there's a lot of, uh, the, a lot of legal language in the prophets. Uh, one of their key jobs is to indict the people. That's why repent is the primary message. Turn back. Return, turn to the Lord. Those are all the same words in Hebrew for, <laughs> for these Old Testament prophets. Return to the Lord. Uh, come back to him. And one of the things they would do is tell parables as well. Often to sort of illustrate the dire situation Israel was in. So they would sort of, they would on the one hand, by carrying God's word, they would prosecute his case, but they would also reiterate all of God's promises. Again, not weaving uh, Together some impersonal fate indifferently imposed by a capricious God, but rather the personal promises that God has had made his presence promised to them that God was going to deliver as a you know that he had guaranteed, and one of the in fact one of the things that they would that would verify that were the miracles they would perform so the idea of a prophet was less about some guy who 's communicating. Some impersonal future, but those who are delivering the personal promises of God in the context of the people that need to repent. That are being called that minute to repent. So, listen, and let's give Herod his due here. Herod is actually interested in what this prophet has to say. He's intrigued by it. He knows that his wife wants this guy murdered, wants this guy executed, but he still. Wants to continue to hear it. Doesn't t- totally work out. We'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, but at least he's a little bit intrigued by this. And this is what it means to come to God's word, right? Is, to, is not to gauge it a, engage it as an abstract treatise on metaphysics, right? It's not that. It isn't a book of philosophy. Though it certainly touches on many philosophical ideas, though it certainly touches on metaphysics, It's not even a book of moral instruction, though it certainly touches on moral topics. God's word is a narrative of his love and care for us. God's word is first and foremost the story of initially creation and fall and then God's redeeming acts for his people. In the and the promise that we are still hanging on to of his eventual return. To be with us fully. In other words, it is personal communication. It is always about God meeting his people. Which is made all the more clear by even those seemingly tedious sections of the Bible. You know, those sections that are really hard to make make it through. I mean, think about the prophets, right? There are, there are large swaths of the prophets that people have a hard time reading through. But what are they about? They're about Israel and their behavior, which often enough is not commendable, right? Uh, it, it, is about, it is about God engaging with what they're doing. It is about God engaging with them in the context of their na- the neighboring nations, right? This is personal communication part of it is hard because we may not even understand a lot of that but that's why that's why it is it is hard to understand because it's actually engaging them personally and it becomes clearer the more that we start to think in those categories and start to understand and try to think through what who Israel was and and the people that they were surrounded by that we can that, that starts to unlock for us and becomes more engaging as we think through it think about the the laws right Uh, The book of Leviticus is classic, right? Because that's where everybody tries to read through the Bible in a go, and they all get to Leviticus and fall flat on their face. Because it's all the books about the... It's the book all about ceremonial law, right? All the instructions about this sacrifice and that sacrifice. And, I mean, look, even scholars try to piece together quite how all these different types of sacrifices fit together and still debate it and still can't even totally make make sense of, you know, that they totally understand how this whole system was supposed to work. The point, though, is this, that even all of that law that seems so tedious to us is about how they came into God's presence. The whole question at the heart of all of that, of that whole massive book about sacrifices and all these other things was how on earth were they going to be in God's presence? And meet him. It was still about how they were going to engage God personally. You see, because this is a covenant book, because God's relationship with us is a covenant relationship. And the, the best way to understand a covenant relationship is in contrast to a contract relationship. Because what is a contract, right? It's an agreement of a sort of exchange of goods and services, right? God, I'm going to serve you, and you're going to give me these things. That's basically, the, that's, that's how a contract works, right? Uh, and certainly when we think about God, that's how we, we do it. And most of us, we default to that, don't we? Thinking of, in ter- of, of God as if, you know, hey, well, I'm, I'm kind of giving you, I'm holding up my end of this deal, and now you've got to hold up your end of this deal. And like any contract, when it stops working, you know, we either think it's expired, or we accept that we're going to, you know, we're going to pay out for a breach of contract, but then be done with it and move on. But a covenant is a deep bond, a personal bond, an unbreakable bond, a, you know, that we are together for, in this for good. We're not going anywhere. This isn't going, to, we're not going, this isn't going to break down. We're not going to walk away. And it may be, for long stretches, a one-sided relationship. And, I mean, if you're thinking about God and us, right, that's very one-sided for him. <laughs> uh, this is why we call marriage a covenant, right, because it's that kind of relationship, right? If you're going to get into a ball- keeping a balance sheet about who's doing what, you know, your marriage is going to be in for trouble uh, because you're bound together, right? And there might just be long stretches where somebody really needs help, a lot more help than the other person, and You know, if you're going to get into a kind of tit-for-tat about it, it's not going to work well. This is what a covenant is like. It is that deep bond. And so the Bible is like that. It is this personal covenant document, right? So it is not not about a contract. It is about a personal relationship that God has had with his people. Going back 3,500 years. The book itself takes place over 1,500 years. So we have to read it contextually, right? We have to make sense of who who the people before us were that God had called and the changes even in that relationship over those years. We have to think about it contextually, but we still need to think about it as being for us. That it being contextual doesn't make it inapplicable. In fact, because it's contextual, because it is the relationship with God, the covenant relationship with God, it is still applicable to us. Even if we have to think through what were unique aspects of their life and culture and even how they related to God, it is still applicable to us. So that means that when we come to God's word, we have to be listening together, first of all, because it is for God's people, not just you or me individually. This is kind of hard to understand, uh, especially, I think, as individualistic Americans as Protestants, as all these other things, we tend to sort of think my reading is the way that it's got to be. But even if you go back to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, this is why they were so concerned to say, uh, actually, we're reading the Bible the way that the early church read it. Because they didn't want to have idiosyncratic readings. They didn't want to have their own personal reading that was, you know, that was totally unique. They wanted to read it together as the church. And this is the way we're called to read it, is to think together, think through it. I mean, this is why, you know, while I, you know, while maybe I bear a certain kind of responsibility in unpacking the word, we all bear this burden together to listen to the word and to challenge one another and to think through it, right? This, is, this isn't a unique task for me as a minister. It is the task of all of us, for sure, uh, to be in God's word and thinking and praying through it together but it is still also personal, right? Those things are not in contrast, right? Because I've still got to take the God's word and apply it to my life. Think it through in terms of what does this mean for me and my day in and day out, my family, my goals, my endeavors. But most of all, it means that we have to listen lovingly. And this is where probably the struggle starts, because most of us, and especially with an old book, are taught what Paul Ricoeur calls a hermeneutic of suspicion. We're taught to read an old book thinking, you know, what is, what is the agenda of this writer that they are trying to convince me of? I knew a Harvard professor who, who used to call this, uh, he used to say, the hermeneutic of suspicion is just simply asking, what is this guy trying to pull over on me? And uh, instead, what we're called to is a hermeneutic of love. That's what Alan Jacobs calls it. A, a, a calling to listen lovingly. So we're not pretending that the Bible is, is disinterested. No, it's very interested. The Bible is trying to convince you of something, but it is forthright about it, right? It wants you to know the love of God and the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. It is a message of love. It is a hermeneutic of love that we are called to engage and listen to God's Word with. To have confidence that, as Sinclair Ferguson says, God's Word does God's work in God's people by the power of God's Spirit. That's a mouthful, right? God's word does God's work in God's people by God's spirit. But then we're already starting to touch on the challenge here, right? The challenge of the prophetic message. Because while Herod was intrigued and liked to, to keep John around and you know, was kind of interested in what he had to say, Herod didn't actually want to engage with what it said. Herod didn't want to listen to God. A little background here might be helpful. Uh, this, might, this might be a little confusing because you, you might know the name Herod. A lot of people who have been around the Bible much know the name Herod. But many of us are thinking of the Herod that was Herod the Great, the ruler when Jesus was born. Uh, you, you know the stories from Christmas uh, and how when the Magi showed up, when the wise men showed up, uh, he got upset and tried to kill all the baby boys off. Well, that was Herod the Great. Now he called himself the Great. So Um, that was his own title for himself. He was a client king under Rome, and he ruled all of, of Israel and Syria, Palestine, that whole region. But shortly after Jesus' birth, he died. And Rome decided to split up his kingdom amongst his children, or at least a few of his children, as rulers. Now, there was a guy who was in the southern part of Israel who ruled for a while but was pretty incompetent and eventually removed by the Romans, and they put in their own Roman governor. Down the road in Mark, we'll meet him. His name is Pontius Pilate. But in northern Israel, in Galilee, where Jesus was, there was one of Herod's sons, a guy named Herod Antipas, who was still reigning and the ruler, and that's who we meet here. And if you want to know how messed up uh, the Herod family was, it's pretty obvious, actually, if you were paying attention to his relationship here. Uh, so he has he had actually met his half-brother's wife and started up a relationship with her. Her name was Herodias. They love that name, Herod, don't they? Uh, her name was Herodias. Turns out, by the way, she was also his niece, which is creepy, and... Uh, so, so they've started this whole incestuous relationship, right? And, uh, and so she's left her first husband, now married with him, to him. And it gets worse. Because as you start to realize this story as it's unfolding, uh, and you pay a little attention to the party that Herod throws, you realize that this is a Greek-style symposium. This is a, this is a uh, which doesn't mean what we mean in academic circles when we talk about symposium. Uh, it was a party, And women only came as entertainment of a pretty lascivious sort. So the fact that his stepdaughter is then invited in to dance has all kinds of gross implications. Uh, The fact that they're so entertained by it. So the whole thing is pretty sketchy. Herod is not a good man. And if we're tempted to to think that, well, he was trying to listen to God. No, he wasn't. He was intrigued. He kind of liked the idea of listening to a prophet, of hearing a prophet anyway. But he didn't want to listen in a biblical sense, right? He didn't actually want to take it seriously. He didn't want to apply it in his own life. So he kept, he was trying to keep John around, but he wasn't actually really sorry. He was sorry that Herodias' daughter asked for John's head, but mostly because his plaything got taken away. Not because he actually wanted to take it seriously. You see, because this is what happens when God's word shows up it challenges us. It always does. The challenge will look different for each of us, it may challenge different things about your life than it challenges in mine because we value different things, we may be pursuing different things. But when God's word shows up, it always challenges us because it changes our perspective. Because if we want to understand the world the way God sees it, it has to be a change of perspective to some degree or another, doesn't it? It always implies that something about the world is going to be different than the way we have thought about it. God's word challenges us. It challenges us to think about our own place in that world very differently, our own goals. It's fine to have all kinds of goals, but of course the Bible is constantly challenging us. But are those goals, is the end of those goals the kingdom of God? Is all of our ambition about us or about serving the Lord? It challenges those things that we root our identity in. It talks about, it, it challenges us to think about our careers differently, about our lifestyle differently. It's fine, to, <laughs> it's fine to have an idea of what kind of lifestyle you might want to live. But is that controlling who you are? Is that what is really defining you? It's, it is fine to have a career and to pursue it well and to pursue it hard. But does that define who you are? Think about even relationships, right? Even the most important relationships, like our family, like romance, like friendship, these are all good things, right? It is, good and fi- it is a good and fine thing to pursue them. We need them, they're important, but do they define you? Is the last word about your life how your family's turning out? Is the last word about your life whether that person really likes you or not. And the Bible challenges us to see our lives through a different lens, that we are defined by Jesus and what he has done, not by anybody else, not by any other accomplishment. It challenges, of course, our actions as well. Have we really thought about what we're doing, about how we treat others? about what we are bringing other people into? Have we really thought deeply about that? The Bible's always a challenge. And there are lots of questions about God's word. I've, I'm always, well, I can't say I'm surprised anymore, but it, was, it was, it's interesting to me when I talk to people who are skeptical about it, about the problems they have, and then to say, you know, I know, Lots of people that are in the church that believe that have the same questions that you have. They have the same questions about how do I kind of deal with different contradictions or seeming contradictions in the Bible? How do I? How does this sync with science? You know, what about these particular moral demands? I mean, I'm not sure they make any sense to me. What does this mean? Right? I I know. I know people that reject the Bible that have those questions, but I know people that are in the church. That have those same questions, that have those same concerns, that are trying to think it through. And I think often uh, when I think about the Bible, uh, I think about the uh, the contract that the band Van Halen used to have back in the '80s when they were touring. Um, I know you were thinking the same thing. The uh, but Van Halen uh, had this—you know—they were this huge hair band act, right? I mean, everybody loved them. I mean. Um, And Eddie Van Halen is still, you know, one of the greatest guitarists that's ever lived. I mean, no doubt. But they had this massive production. And they would take it, you know, on, they were going, they were traveling all the time in the 80s, right? It was this huge stage. I mean, massive, heavy, intricate, pyrotechnics. I mean, all this different stuff. So they had this huge contract rider, you know, that was just enormous, right? That, That for the safety of everybody involved, you know, the venue needed to go through. And buried in that rider, article number 126 required that they have M&Ms backstage for the band. And it required that there be no brown M&Ms. You know, so, so you, know, the leg- you know, somebody had to sort through a bag of M&Ms, you know, and pull out all the brown ones. Um, Uh, And it was. this is actually what it said. It said, there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the show with full compensation. And, of course, that sounds like, you know, classic kind of like prima donna behavior on, you know, these rock stars that, you know, somebody's got some weird thing about brown M&Ms. But what, what they've said, you know, gone on the record saying, of course, after they've stopped being such a big act, was that what it was was the litmus test. They had this huge production and it was really dangerous if they went on stage and tried to perform their show if, if, if the venue hadn't gone through and set up everything just right. And so the band would walk into the back and their kind of litmus test if they could trust this venue was to look at the bowl of M&M's <laughs> to see if they had found that one thing that was buried there or not. Now, I mean, Don't misunderstand this illustration. I'm not saying that God has hid little Easter eggs all over the Bible, and if you don't find them, then he's judging you. That's not what I'm saying. The point is this, that God wants what's best for you. And many of us who are in the church, which is to say nothing about those of you who may not believe this message, many of us are still kind of picking and choosing. Well, I kind of, I kind of like this part of it. I, I kind of like that part. Uh, I'm not so sure about this. I'm, you know, that stuff about what I do with my money. Not so sure about that. The things about how I'm supposed to love other people. Eh, not so sure. Should I, I? I don't know about forgiving this or that person. Be whatever it is, right? Or I, I, don't know if I, I, I don't know if I think that what the Bible says about sexuality is true. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that's really accurate. I don't, I'm not sure what I think about this or that. Whatever it is, right, there are all kinds of different questions. I get it. You may not know how to make sense of them. But what God is calling you to do is say, listen, I gave this to you in love. This is meant so that you can live well. Listen to me. I'm not saying you can't pursue answers to the questions you have. I am asking about whether you're going to take it seriously as God's word or whether we're still picking and choosing. I mean, that's the challenge of listening to God's word, isn't it? Whether I'm really going to take it all seriously or whether I'm just going to pick and choose what I like. And of course, that kind of thing is what leads prophets to the ends that they always meet. John ends up in a gruesome death, doesn't he? Verses 27 and 28. It's a real spectacle. In fact, there's a, a whole host of uh, of uh, artistic works that have been spawned by this scene. It's this little moment in the Bible, uh, but the spectacle of it has sort of fascinated lots of artists. Um over the years, you know, for whatever reason, it's been that that spectacle has sort of captured their imagination. But this is the way that it goes with prophets. You know, at least Isaiah was told from the very beginning, nobody's gonna listen to you. God calls him and then says, But by the way, everybody's gonna everybody's gonna refuse to listen to what you have to say. Others, of course, along the way have to learn that no one is gonna listen. They're going to be rejected. And that is always how it goes with the prophets. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 23 says this. He's talking to the religious leaders. He says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets.'" In other words, he's saying, while you pretend that you would have thought differently, the fact that you decorate the tombs proves that you approve of it. And he goes on a few verses later, looking over Jerusalem and says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. The way of the prophet is death. It's rejection. It's always rejection. Because God's word is challenging to us, to put it lightly. And notice that is what is starting to happen in Jesus' own ministry. This is going to become clearer as we move along through Mark But the reason I think that Mark takes us on this long parenthetical account of what ended up happening to John, the reason he does that, the reason he takes us through that long rabbit trail is to tell us, look, if Jesus is a prophet, get ready for where this is going. But Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the anointed one. That's Messiah in Hebrew. It's Christ in Greek, right? He is the anointed one. And there were three types of anointed ones in the Old Testament. The prophet, priest, and king. And it's kind of fascinating how it is the prophetic road that Jesus starts by taking. And he sets up, of course, throughout that he is, uh, he is this prophet. He brings a message just like the prophets. Repent and believe. That's what he said back in chapter 1. When he first began, it was the prophetic message. Repent and believe. He speaks with authority. He tells parables. He performs miracles, right? He is a prophet. He's bringing God's word, and it's going to get him in trouble. But by the end, towards the end of his ministry, people are starting to realize maybe he's a little more than that. Maybe he's the king. So by the time he gets to Jerusalem, you know that Jerusalem that kills its prophets? By the time he gets there, People are saying, well, maybe this is the son of David. Maybe this is the king. And there's all kinds of allusions on Palm Sunday to this idea that Jesus is the returning son of David, the returning king that they wanted. But it's also, of course, the charge that finally does him in, that he was a would-be king. You know, remember, they nailed the sign above the cross, mockingly, that he was the king of the Jews. But as he hung on the cross, something else becomes clear. That he was the priest that we always needed. Because it is in shedding his blood that he can declare that it is finished, that nothing else is needed, that all that we need to be with God has been provided. All of that word that comes from God through the prophets for all these long years has ultimately been about Jesus. It was the anointed one that all those promises were pointing to, and they were clear about it. Nobody else saw it along the way until he was hanging on the cross and resurrected. But all along, it had always been pointing to him. This is how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you how you should or shouldn't live, and the Bible certainly has, does have some rules in it. Uh, they show us how to live best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he's done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you pe- people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you see a beautiful picture. You see, we needed Jesus all along to put the pieces together. Do you want to know why you can listen to the Bible? The reason that you can trust in this covenant document, even when it challenges you? is because you know that at the heart of it is the one who has bound himself to you. When it was the most one-way relationship it could possibly be, they didn't give up on you. Because you know that when Jesus gave his blood, he purchased you. Because you know that like First Peter 1 says, That all those prophets, they were looking forward to Jesus. And this was the mystery that even the angels longed to look into. Was the mystery of God's prophet, priest, and king. His only son, who would give everything for you. And so the question this morning is, will we listen to God? Will we listen to what God calls us to do? Will we listen when it's hard? Will we listen to how much he loves us? Let's pray. Father, we know that your love never fails. We know that despite our failings, you are always good. We know that Jesus is all that we need. Yet we're so slow to believe it. Remind us of how good you are, of how gracious your Son is, of how powerful the Spirit is at work in us. Convince us, convict us, draw us near that we might commune with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.